This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Anif Baharudin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, editor of Rage, Ian Yi. Welcome, Ian. Hello. So, I mean, I, I think this is a very exciting week. <laughs> you know, Rage has been gaining such a sort of like huge reputation in recent years as a serious platform, right, for investigative journalism. Now, given that it has begun as a sort of like youth-oriented platform or section in the mainstream daily, why did you choose to steer Rage in this sort of like direction and not say, for example, uh, towards something that catered to a more millennial kind of like taste, like console journalism <laughs> or vice, yeah, things that, you know, right. tend to have a large kind of internet presence. Right. I, I don't know whether it's our idealism, but we always we always thought that this is what millennials actually want. Okay. I think even when we were doing Rage, when it was more of a, a youth lifestyle kind of section, which is what I think a lot of people at the time thought young people wanted. There's a lot of condescension, I think, in th- that kind of decision-making and young people are being told essentially mm. that this is the kind of content that you who want. Who makes those kinds of decisions in a newspaper? Who makes, who makes those kinds of decisions in the newspaper? I, I guess, um, I don't know. I guess it's it's just the way it's always been done, right? These right. are legacy issues. Young people want fun and excitement, want lifestyle and entertainment. And it's the same, it was the same across the world. Mm. Uh, but at Rage, I think I had really good editors at the time. Uh, Nikki Cheung, mm-hmm. who was a columnist at Bangsa Boy, and uh, Ivy Soon, who was a fantastic journalist, fantastic editor. They kept pushing the boundaries of that. They kept saying that, no, young people actually want a lot of serious journalism as well. We're just not doing it in the right format and the, through the right channels. Mm. So they they kept pushing us, especially when I was a cadet journalist at the time, to write these stories. Of course, as a young journalist, you're like, no, I just want to go to concerts. I just want to watch yeah. free movies. But they slowly chipped away at that and showed me that my work actually could mean something more. Mm. So by the time uh, those circumstances just kind of pushed me into the limelight, I became the editor of Rage for some strange reasons that I won't go into a very long story. Uh, so we had a decision to make. Okay. Do we stick with uh, whatever we were doing, which didn't seem to be working very well, uh, didn't seem to be uh, relevant to our audience at the time, or do we trust our gut instinct that young people actually want much more? Mm-hmm. And it's proven to be right because now we know that millennials and, uh, and the current generation of young people, they have a really strong sense of social justice. Mm-hmm. You know, there are climate strikes around the world, anti-gun lobby, you know, activists, our teenagers nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very glad that we and young people around the world have proven that theory wrong. Right. Uh, right. So yeah, so it's it wasn't out of, uh, not necessarily some, something that I think was really idealistic. In that sense, it was very practical and pragmatic as well. Mm-hmm. We saw the trend going that way and we felt uh, we are primed to take advantage of that. Okay. And in that sense, yeah, cool. we, we went ahead and did it. So I imagine, uh, as you were saying just now, this started during the time where Nikki Chong and Ivy Soon were helming the editorship of Rage, right? Uh, what was the sort of like turning point for you during that period? Like, what was that? Wow. Yeah. Was there was there a particular sort of like moment that yes. you know yeah. sold you this side of like, oh, made you be, uh, yeah sold you this idea that you, this is the direction that yeah Rage I, I possibly go to it. I think every journalist will go through that that point, you know where. You do a story and you're like, wow, this is the power of journalism, you know, if it's done right. For me, it was when Ivy gave me some ideas for a story, mm-hmm. which was about young adults with learning disabilities. So a lot of the, narrative, the narratives back then about people with learning disabilities uh, focused on kids in younger age groups. And there was this awkward kind of conversation. It, it, the, the conversation gets a bit awkward when they reach young adulthood. So this is when they need to look for jobs 
when they start thinking about having relationships, when some of them want to get married and start families. And, and those conversations aren't navigated particularly well in Malaysian society. So she told me, you know, why don't you explore this? So I spent a few weeks speaking to families who had children who are in their, uh, who are 17 or 18 or 19 and uh, they had learning disabilities. So I just followed them to see what their challenges were and I, I wrote this really long feature story. And this was you just cold calling people? No, no, I, I okay. went, I, right. oh, cold calling, yeah, yeah. Uh, calling cold calling to find leads. Okay. Uh, calling schools and, and, and NGOs who are doing oh. work with people with learning disabilities. And uh, so I, then after that, I followed them. Mm-hmm. Like do, did a kind of like a day in the life thing, how they navigate jobs, how they work with their colleagues, how they navigate relationships, their social lives. And it was just amazing, such an amazing experience for me. And I wrote the story. And the great thing was back then, uh, we didn't have social media, so I couldn't track comments or anything. But I got a lot of emails and I got a lot of oh, letters wow. written in by parents who said that, you know, thank you so much for telling our stories. It's made a big difference for them. So that was that was a big turning point for me, and I finally got to see what Ivy was trying to tell me. You know, my boss at the time uh, that, yeah, you're you're having fun, you're going out there doing a lot of stuff for for rage, which is which is what a typical young person would like to do. But don't forget that you you can do so much more. Yeah. So there was that turning point. Yeah, and if do you have the same experience working here in the radio station? <laughs> well, maybe not as as. Colorful as as I think Ian. <laughs> I, I guess my experience. Like but do you different. have your fan mails? <laughs> do you get your fa- fan mails as well? Uh, no. no. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think mine was fan mailed. <laughs> yeah, it was just a nice thank you note. I don't think they even remember who I am anymore. Ah, cool. Yeah. But so uh, you know, fast we can fast forward that a bit, and then you became the editor of sort of Rage. Yeah. And how did you even put this team together? As I understand. This team is also quite sort of like uh, multidisciplinary, right? They all come from very different backgrounds. And they're not your conventional journalists, for example. Uh, uh, yeah, we got really lucky. Okay. Like our first few hires. The one thing I can take credit for with this team is I, uh, I sold the direction really well at the start to tell them that if you want to do work that really matters, I think Rage is the place for you. you know, th- these are kind of stories that we've been doing under Nikki and Ivy. And this is the direction we're going to go. And I'm so lucky that we got all these really talented young people who were just stuck in other jobs in the media that they absolutely hated. Um, And uh, so they resonated with that kind of like mission and uh, they joined us and it all worked out well. And I think the main person would be Elroy, right? Mm -hmm. That was probably the biggest uh, thing for us, getting him on board. Uh, He had already done some uh, documentary work. He he was a fixer and he was uh, uh, for for some investigative work for media organizations outside of the country as well. So when he said yes, I think that was the turning point for us. Oh, and then cool. after that, we just brought in... Uh, we worked together, produced a few couple of good things, just the six or seven of us at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, from there, it kind of snowballed. People saw our first documentary, The Curse of Sarawan. They're like, wow, this is this is from Malaysia? You guys went in and investigated this. You guys spent a week in the, in, in the, in the jungle. And that kind of resonated a lot with other people in the industry and right. that's, yeah how do you that compare how, how, how do you compare uh, to say other media organizations around the world is investigative journalism sort of like you know making a comeback in different parts of the world as well yeah. and uh, and how do they sort of like you know carve out a space for themselves in such a competitive sort of like media landscape yeah. today unfortunately i think it's still very much a niche it's okay. still very much uh it's very much a luxury 
that a lot of newsrooms cannot afford. Uh, what we're seeing is there are more and more non-profit investigative outfits, um, mm. you know, coming up in in different parts of the world, which is great. But I think it's still we're we're still very much on our own. But I think one trend that I've seen is what I would call social justice okay. kind of journalism, social justice reporting. So the best example of this is Teen Vogue. Mm, Teen okay. Vogue, uh, you know, just run us through it. <laughs> just a few years ago, Teen Vogue was you know uh, doing. You know, typical teen reporting. You know, they were talking about there's a lot of celebrity gossip, beauty tips, and and stuff like that. Nothing wrong with it, but I think a lot of their audience was looking for something more. So they are right now they're they're going for it. They are taking on like I can't remember what are the latest issues they're working on, but it's super woke. If <laughs> I can bo- wow. borrow the okay. the parlance, you you mean yeah. it's actually even more sort of like serious in terms of its content than woke. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I I really? recommend it way more than than Vogue. Um, yeah, they That's they talk about uh, migrant rights and and stuff like that. It's it's amazing, and it's a perfect example of that kind of journalism that young people want nowadays. Hmm. Uh, and the faster the industry wakes up to that, uh, the better it is for everyone. I guess. What do you account for this shift? Like. What what's happening sort of like on the ground, and wow. what's your sense of the temperature? That's that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure, oh. but I think, I I okay. I think it's because this generation of young people they're actually very empowered by technology. Okay, right. So they don't they no longer feel that sense of you know waiting on the world to change to borrow the term from from a certain artist. Uh, they know that they can make that difference now. Mm. So that sense of youthful optimism that tends to get crushed in previous generations because they can't do anything about it. This generation, they harness technology to advance their causes. So that optimism doesn't get crushed. In fact, it gets fed and it, you know, it grows into something that can really change the world. They don't have to wait for anyone to get it done. Mm-hmm. So, so the more traditional stories, the more like, for example, I mean, political investigative journalism, is the, do you think that those types of stories are no longer popular compared to maybe social justice uh, stories? I, I can only speak from my opinion and what I see from uh, the people, from the people that comment on our stories and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, I think young people are tired of these of the kind of politics that we're seeing around okay. the world. So they're going straight at the heart of these issues. They don't care about the polit- the politicians. They don't care about the politics. Okay. I'm going straight into talking about migrant rights, into into gun laws, for example. I'm going to talk about it. I don't care what the policymakers are going to say about it. Right. Rather than so, think of what chess, who are the ones who are moving out the chess pieces. Yeah. It feels that way, okay, right? Right. They're like, screw you to the to the hierarchy, and uh, I'm I'm going to raise my voice about this, and uh, we're going to come up with our solutions. A lot of it has to do with digital advocacy and activism, mm. uh, but I think a lot of it also translate to act, trans, has translated into actual change in okay. the world. Can you explain a bit more about what do you mean exactly by harnessing sort of like technology for these causes? Uh, right. Do you simply just just mean that you know they're using social media platforms to sort of advance these causes, or are they? Is there a deeper kind of like engagement with technology going on there? I think. I would like to to see a deeper engagement with technology in many of these cases, but unfortunately, I think we're still at that stage where uh, awareness, mm-hmm. uh, raising awareness through digital technology and digital media is is where most of these campaigns are at. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand the struggle because when Rage tries to do it as well, mm-hmm. we often come come across a lot of challenges, uh, technological barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we don't have the expertise, for example, 
But we've seen some examples uh, around the world where mm. they can translate it into something quite real. Do you uh, have examples? Uh, it would be nice to share them. Okay, I can think of one where we we did quite well. Okay, uh, right now off the top of my head, which was the predator in my phone investigations, right? So not only were we able to create awareness, we were able to use technology as a way to empower people to lobby their members of parliament to support the legislation against child sexual crimes. Mm. So I think that's a good example. Okay. But in other cases, other stories that we've done where there is no clear like impact solution yet, for example, with wildlife smuggling, mm. uh, all we can do is ed- educate people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that we did. We try our best to make it more interesting, to illustrate the story so that it gets to a, a larger audience, a younger audience, so that they start considering these issues at a younger age. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge, there's a lot of merit in that approach as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, just raising awareness and, you know, getting the issue out there. But of course, if, if it translates into something in the real world, so to speak, yeah. uh, that's all the, all the better. Mm-hmm. How, how important is data in, in your work? Uh, because especially, you know, with the rise of technology, I think data become a bit more accessible. But at the same time, it's also... Uh, you also have to know where to find all this data, yeah. right? So, so how do you work around these things? Uh, to be honest, Rage has not done a lot of data work. Uh, okay. We don't have the expertise at the moment. Uh, we wish we did. Uh, but yeah, data is gonna. I think it's gonna become much more important. Maybe not in social justice type reporting, mm-hmm. where you still focus a lot on human stories. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like I think in political pieces or in. Uh, if you're tackling financial corruption or issues like that, then it becomes, I don't know, we, we, we haven't really explored it. Uh, is, there room, pieces, is there room for, you know, rage to explore, ex- expand in that direction? Definitely, definitely. Okay. So we, we do have someone who is very skilled in terms of coding. And uh, that's something we're trying to make the most of her skills whenever we can. Oh. But data reporting lends itself to certain issues, but not not at all. Mm-hmm. Alright, okay. So I think we should maybe maybe let's take a break first. You're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baradin and Simon Soon and this week we're joined by Ian Yi. He's the editor of Rage, the Star's investigative arm. Right? Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you tune in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Ian Yi, editor of Reach, an investigative journalism platform. Um, I think one of the things that I'm quite curious to know is... Um, how do you build your network, right? You, mem- you mentioned just now that you have uh, one of your colleagues, he used to be a fixer. I think and fixer, there is quite a sophisticated, quite a useful, I think, profession within the within the investigative journalism world, right? Uh, so um, do you rely on a lot of fixers and do you build these networks based on the things that you do? Not, not really, yeah, because... Fixers are generally used by foreign correspondents, right? They come mm-hmm. into, they get parachuted in, uh, they need someone to immediately give them the lay of the land. Uh, that's where fixers are very important and mm-hmm. very knowledgeable and uh, have to act uh, almost as an associate producer. So for us, we were lucky to get someone who was already doing that uh, and okay. was able to immediately step in as our producer. But thereafter, we actually, honestly, we hired a lot of film and TV students. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, that. That was the next step. Uh, we needed a lot of technical ability uh, and we just had to find people 
who are sick of the television industry, who wanted to do content that made a difference, uh, sold the idea to them, and yeah, they, uh, quite a few joined us. Right. So it's also very technologically heavy, right? I mean, it's not yeah. like you're hiring also just, you know, your run-of-the-mill traditional yeah. journalism school kind of like graduate. Yeah, uh, which is really unfortunate, right? Okay. We, like, for example, I've been asked to do some, like, uh, university, con- not consulting, but they do try to get feedback from people in the uh-huh. industry when they're developing their courses. And it's it's quite disheartening to see a lot of courses are still not focusing on technical skills. Okay. Uh, it's still a lot of theory that some of it seems a bit outdated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I go in and try to give my feedback as best as I can that... Yeah, why do, for example, broadcasting students get all this technical information and they also do maybe Journalism 101, but mm-hmm. the journalists don't. Oh, you know, the journalists okay. are stuck doing, I don't know, strange things. like They like, don't even get like proper writing training or stuff like that. It's more mostly tweet, theoretical kind of like engagement with the media. Is yeah, right? I think okay. if it's writing, it's strange, okay. like writing for a magazine or whatever. And I'm like, what, what's the distinction anymore? Mm. Uh, is that a, a specific form of writing that's still relevant in the industry? Yeah. Uh, if you say feature writing, maybe, but some of it will be, yeah, literally that. Uh, so I, I think uh, the way we are training and educating our journalists has to change. Uh, we have to understand and accept the challenges faced by the modern journalists to be very technologically savvy and very technical. Mm-hmm. So that's why we turn a lot more to technical courses like broadcasting students or film and TV. Mm. Uh, and these are people that still have that same millennial and Gen Z kind of spirit of social justice. So it wasn't such a stretch to teach them the principles of journalism. Mm. Um, but I think at the core, you just want someone that has the right character, right? Right. right, uh, right. Technical skills you can teach, but these are people that you know, had technical skills, had the right character, just have to teach them the journalistic principles and then they were set. Yeah. What about the editorial know-how? I understand that technical skills are important, but at the same time, how do you get them to think like how you guys think? It was a really slow process. It was a really slow process. Um, So, we had to develop everything essentially from scratch, right? Okay. Uh, Very few other people were doing investigative journalism in Malaysia. There's not anyone we could call and say, how did you do this? How did you do that? to do everything very slowly. Do you have predecessors that you could, you know, call out on and rely on for, you know, sound advice? (laughs) Honestly, no. Honestly, no. Um, We have consulted some uh, people from, for example, foreign correspondents, you know, and foreign media. They might have some experience doing investigative stuff here. Uh, So we have consulted some of them on very specific issues. But everything else, we had to be sensible uh, mm-hmm. We had to speak to some experienced journalists in in uh, in the Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did give some advice, but generally speaking, when it comes to a lot of things, they'd be like, "Yo, you just, yeah, yeah." But you know, the <laughs> the fact that you are passing on these skills uh, via osmosis, almost right, it, it's as if you're sort of reverting back to the traditional kind of like apprenticeship model, and yeah. that seemed to, in some ways, work to your advantage. Yeah, yeah, I uh, think so. I think so. Yeah, that that's actually very true. It's re- working at Rage is really like an apprenticeship. You gotta work your way up. Uh-huh. You start doing uh, non-investigative work. We and do then you prove of, yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do a lot of human-based, uh, like human interest stories. Uh, there's a lot of post-production work, assistant camera work. We also do a series called News Flash where we explain the current affairs issues every week. Mm. So that kind of gives them a sense of the level of reporting that we need. 
uh, we get to understand how objective they really are, whether they can, mm. they understand these issues. And then after, yeah, slowly they work their way up into, towards doing an investigative piece. Mm. Do you see more value in that kind of like training? I mean, what's, uh, what's the advantage over, say, you know, sending, sending one of your cadets over to journalism school and, um, uh, and getting a training through, a, say, a professional course? I'm probably biased in saying this, <laughs> but yeah. if someone had asked me what they should do, a two-year course in university or or a year... Or in, dive straight in. Yeah, um, right. or a year of apprenticeship in Rage, I tell them, just come straight to us. Okay. You get a portfolio, you get... You, you get your name in the credits of some actual work, you will definitely do some real reporting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I really think uh, there's much more value in that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How in-depth do you go when it comes to investigating or, you know, doing a certain story? Are, are you tied to deadlines and do you try to, you know, go as in-depth as possible or do you try to... Yeah, when when do you say, okay, that's it, this is as far as we can cover for this particular story, uh, we need to meet the deadlines, uh, you know, like it or not, uh, and we can always explore this, this story, you know, much deeper, you know, some of the time. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's just different case to case. Uh, it's really hard to put a deadline on something. Like even when we were doing uh, print back then, right? When we were uh-huh. still putting a lot of our stories in print, and we still do. Uh, we always joke, like even to the last second when you're delivering that page upstairs to the people in, the, uh, in pre-press, you're always on the way up the, the the lift. You're always still looking at it, going, "Oh, we could change this. We could make this better." <laughs> oh, we can. You're always doing that just on the elevator ride up. And I think it's the same with, even more so with the kind of what we do now where you always think we could include another soundbite here, we probably could interview another person there. Uh, so it's hard to put a deadline on it. And uh, the more we've done it, the more we realize we need to give ourselves more time. Mm. And a lot of these issues are uh, are always constantly unfolding. Right. With our investigation on the drug trade, for example, like a million things have happened since we released it that we were like, oh, well. We, we is that still an it. ongoing sort of like investigation, for example? Or have, is, is that case sort of like closed and you have packed up and moved on? We, well, now that it's out, we can't really investigate anymore. Okay. So we're, we're looking into ongoing situations regarding the families. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, we can't say too much about it right now. Of but course. but yeah. it's, yeah, there's still things happening and and it's, it'll always be like that. Mm. In some cases, you have no choice but to wait. So our student trafficking mm-hmm. story, for example, uh, there were a few things that we had no choice. We couldn't say that, no, we're not going to, we're, we're just going to proceed, screw it, you know, we're going to run the story the way it is. But there were certain issues that we had to sort out uh, before we released it. Right, but that's very frustrating because that holds things up sometimes for a few months, which is what happened. Okay, with so traffic. your average sort of like you know lead time from say the investigative period to production, oh to, <laughs> you would get at least what five to six months or more than that. Or uh, is that... sometimes more. Wow, sometimes that's a luxury, no? That really is. Yes, it uh, really is. But at the same time, what people don't realize very is jealous. no, no. What people don't realize is there's like five or six all ongoing at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you, you sound like just an you, you just sound like an academic. No, really, 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 uh, there's always there's always a long list of things we're looking into, and uh, they tend to pile up, and we're like, oh, so this one we can finally move forward with this. So let's start working on that one now. Let's do post-production for that. Let's let's do the, the online edit and, and put it out. Mm. And uh, while, that, while you're doing that, 
you're still researching and investigating the five other sto- projects that are on our table. We're still doing the weekly newsflash series. We're still running impact campaigns in schools, for example. We're still yeah. doing a blind football film to help the uh, visually impaired community. So yeah, how big is the team? Remind us again. There are there there are sixteen of us right now. Okay, 16. okay. So yeah, I, I know a lot of people. The first thing they'll say is, "Oh, you get to spend uh, seven, eight months on one story." Yeah, wow. But <laughs> it's actually, I've done daily news before. Right, right. This is I can tell you for sure. This is way more stressful than daily news. Yeah. Because uh, uh, daily news, you have closure at the end of every day, right? Mm. The story is done. I have maybe two, three hours of like uh, of 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 heart attack inducing kind of stress. Yeah, and then you but hit then the bar. Yeah. yeah, then you hit. The, <laughs> <laughs> then you go out for tea, yeah. with your colleagues, and, and you put it behind you. And then tomorrow's a new assignment. It's a new day. Okay. But for us, it really eats away at you when you're like, oh, I I I could have released this this week. Mm. But because of some tiny little detail, I'm going to have to wait. So right. I'm going to KIV this and I'm going to start focusing on these five other projects. Uh, and that just goes on and on. And it really, sometimes it's really soul crushing. Right. Uh, it really feels terrible because these are things that you want to like, like the drug trafficking one, for yeah. example. You know, there are families who are calling us and saying that their kids are going to go to court soon. Uh, when can this piece come out? And we have no choice but to tell them, well, it's not done yet. You know, if we mm-hmm. release it now, it's not it's not going to help anyone. Please be patient. So we do have some really tough decisions to make. Right. And on the back of our minds is we want to push this, but at the same time, there are other issues. So I th- like, for example, we were doing our refugees, the Chin refugee piece mm-hmm. at the same time, pretty much. Uh, some There was a bit of overlap on those two projects. Uh, so you can imagine how, how how tough it is for some of the, yeah. the producers to navigate all this on the on well, a I guess daily I, basis. I, I can't imagine the emotional sort of like strain <laughs> on even the journalists themselves yeah. to have to, I guess, constantly sort of like engage yeah. right on so many different fronts. How do you manage that? You know, mental health wise, uh, yeah, in your yeah. team, uh, yeah. is it easier when you know you have a support network in the form of the team members, sort of like understanding what you do actually sort of like do. You know, what's the sort of like balancing act that is in place? Yeah, so I think we all have a really great sense of humor, which really helps. So our team meetings, the one thing we can always count on is that there will definitely be laughter at every team meeting. No matter how tough it is, uh, you know, they have, we we just, and I guess it's because when you're doing these types of projects, you you form a bond that's, I think, really special. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you have each other's backs. We can trust each other essentially with our lives, with our personal safety. So you have a very special type of bond. So we always feel like it's kind of like a big dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that helps. But on top of that, we always remind them to take care of themselves. We always tell them that, um, you know, if they need any, uh, the star will pay for psychiatric help if they need it, if Mm -hmm. they need to see a psychologist. So yeah, so that's something we try to reinforce as much as possible. Uh, but at, I think at the end of the day, nothing replaces that camaraderie that that probably helps more than anything. Mm. Given that we've successfully turned rage into this uh, very interesting sort of like platform, what advice would you give to someone who, uh, in terms, if they want to sort of like grow this space or create a space, a similar kind of space? Hmm. I'm not sure, to be honest. Oh, what kind of uh, advice? Uh, you know, if they were sort of like to head into the boardroom and have a five minutes of like conversation with the board of directors of their 
you know, newspaper company. What should they sort of like say? How 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 do they even wow. sort of like sell this idea? And what did you do to sort of like you know get them to let you run this thing? Yeah, I, I, I we were incredibly lucky. Okay, we were incredibly lucky that the star was very supportive, um, and they still are. So so you just unveiled the plan, and they said yes to it. No, okay. Now I think I now now that you've brought me back to to those conversations, I think I can give some some advice. The only thing that the management of Star said at the time is find a way to make it financially sustainable. Mm-hmm. So obviously, as a journalist, you're not thinking about those things, right? Right. Yeah. You feel this is the right thing to do. I'm proposing it to you. Why don't we just get it done? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone else will figure out the money side. Uh, but that's that's not really like realistic, right? Yeah. So um, our bosses at the time just said, you know, we like what you're trying to do. We like this idea. We see that yeah, young people appear to be more interested in social issues right now. But if you can't make it financially sustainable, it's pointless. So then I had to go back and learn to, and I was a very young editor at the time, I had to learn how to come up with a business plan, I had to come up with uh, like, a, cool. like a projected P&L and stuff like that, which I had never done in my entire life, and they helped me through that process. So a lot of the people in management at the Star helped me with that process. Uh, so I think for any other young journalist who's trying to pull off something like this, be real, you know, yeah. think of it from the management's point of view. Mm-hmm. Really put yourselves in their shoes, right? Because that's what journalism is about, right? Being empathetic and, you know, understanding someone else's point of view and telling someone else's story. But we sometimes forget to apply it to our own circumstances. Right. Uh, in this case, I really was lucky because I I had bosses who were very patient. They didn't just... Oh, I, I, I was being so obnoxious probably back then saying, no, this is the right thing to do. Why can't we just go ahead? It, it will work. It will work. But they forced me to think about, you know, an expansion plan. They forced me to think about long-term sustainability and stuff like that, which was so super boring to me at the time. Right. But if I hadn't learned those lessons back then, I don't think Rage would be around today, right? Mm-hmm. We would probably have made some mistake along the way and, and not get the funding we need to, to keep going. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. cool, great. Mm. Is there a room for investigative journalism in the current, I guess, climate, especially when it comes to, you know, we, as we see, I know a lot of our comrades, uh, people in the industry, you know, have been entrenched because the industry is not really doing well, right, uh, at yeah. this particular moment. So do you think investigative journalism can survive that? Well, yeah. That's a tough question. Or should every editor just sign up for a business course? I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, to be honest, for our industry, right? Things are changing so quickly. Mm. Mm. Uh, But I'd like to think that there are people out there who will support really good journalism. Does it need to be investigative? Uh, And uh, we need to tap into that. You know, we need to commit to these values and these principles that that have guided us for so long you know? mm-hmm. if we commit to that i think there are people who will who will resonate with it and who will want to support yeah. well, what, what are these values can you I, I i guess we don't have that much time left but mm. i i really sort of want to sort of push you to maybe uh explain to us what what are these sort of like values that you really hold on to so fairness mm-hmm. objectivity um doing the right thing mm. you know we doing stuff that's in service of the community and of society. I think those are the values that most journalists, you know, when they get into the industry, that's what they they start off with, right? And okay. it's just life or, I don't know, financial difficulties or whatever that slowly strips away at that and chips away at that. 
But I think uh, if we commit to it long enough, you will come out the other side of the tunnel and, and uh, like, at least it did for Rage and I hope it does for others as well. All right, okay. Thank you very much. You just heard from Ian Yee, editor at Rage, uh, an investigative journalism platform and he's joined by Simon Soon and we've been talking about Rage and investigative journalism here in Malaysia. Share thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio. You can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Uh, don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, Ian Yi and Simon Soon. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Ian. Thank you for having me. I'm Hanif Baharudin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.